My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Again, with your, Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know. If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? by Christ at the Last Supper, which was guarded by a holy order who under royal decree protected the sacred artifact. Legends say it made its way to the British Isles, and there it stayed with King Arthur. But did King Arthur stay in the British Isles? Or could it be that at the onset of the Dark Ages, King Arthur and his knights set sail for the New World? on a course that led them straight into the heart of North and South America, on the northern fringes of the Mayan Kingdom, and right at the heart of the world of the Mound Builders. Our guest today has become an expert in the lost ancient history of North America, hunting for ancient sites, mounds, stone forts, and earthworks, as well as a large variety of -of out-of-place artifacts in his home state of Indiana and beyond. Author, researcher, and broadcaster Rick Osmond joins us on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm Mystic Mark, and thank you for tuning in. Enjoy this episode with Rick Osmond. There was a major extraterrestrial impact event. An asteroid hit the Atlantic Ocean and it caused the Northern Hemisphere to go dark. And the Dark Ages is not about the ability to read and write or the fall of the Roman Empire. No, it's about it being dark. It threw so much stuff into the atmosphere. Sunlight did not make it through. There was famine, there was disease, of course. There was warfare all kind, uh, pretty much all over the Northern Hemisphere. Not just Europe, not just North America, pretty much every civilization that was extant at that time started building stone fortresses. Hmm. So the Indonesia, Siam, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam even, the French encountered all you know ancient stone fortresses, Angkor Wat. At any rate, everything changed. One of the changes was the people of Britain had to find a new home or starve to death. So they loaded up with Prince Maddox, who was the admiral of the fleet. And when that impact event hit, it had sent him and his fleet to North America, where 
He spent 10 years gathering them all back up and preparing to return to home, which he did. When he got home, he found that people were starving to death. His brother, the king, the half-brother, was sending off to far-flung places, including Egypt, to buy grain. And I forgot to mention that Maddox's half-brother's name was Arthur. He was King Arthur II. Not the first. That was Uther Pendragon's original son, but this is his great-grandson. Anyway, so Arthur said, well, gather it all up. Let's go. So they did. And they packed everybody and everything they could into as many ships as they could have or build or buy. And they came to North America, where things were less uneventful than planned because the natives were kind of pissy about a whole big colony arriving all at once. And King Arthur took an arrow, actually he took several, and he died in North America and his body was desiccated. I'm going to go ahead and say, make this claim that his body was desiccated in a cave in northeastern Alabama, and it is to this day called Welsh Caves. And over the entrance to that cave is Arthur Sigla carved into the stone. <laughs> yeah, and it's also in the, the ancient chronicles that his body was sewn into two deer skins and dried in a cave before being returned to Britain. not eligible old enough to join the local county historical society. So my mother took me and then my grandfather took me. And finally the president of the local historical society started taking me and I became acquainted with some of the folks around where I lived and in adjoining counties as well, which is where this story starts getting very interesting. Because adjoining county, in one case, is Knox County, and that is the site of Vincennes. It's the oldest, basically, English-speaking city west of the Appalachians. And the story of Burroughs Cave started there as well, because there was a gentleman in Vincennes. His name was uh, Jack Ward, and he ran a small museum there in Vincennes. It was called the Sonotobac Museum. It had a local points and Indian tools, Native American tools, as well as some oddities. And one of the oddities he picked up in the very early 80s was a a few items that we call Burroughs Cave Stones. And uh, I was not able to take advantage of my proximity to that in the early 80s because I was going to school full-time. And immediately, actually, before I even graduated, I had a job in Florida, so I got moved away for a while. After 25 years of pursuing that career or so, I came out of service, a civilian service for the Navy, civilian employment of the Navy, and had a new, completely new set of skills for studying some of the stuff that fascinated me historically. So that takes me from childhood up to 80, well, after my career, up to early 2000s. And in 2007, I became very active in the field of what they call out-of-place archaeology or out-of-place artifacts, things that are found that shouldn't be found where and when they're found. 
UPAs, if you will. That's the acronym. Or LUPA for Large Out-of-Place Artifact. So I started a blog show like this on Blog Talk Radio called the Uba Loopa Cafe and talked about all of these plus a few other out there, let's see, what would you call them? Stories, things, misfit mysteries of history and other things. We did UFOs with structures on Mars. We did all those things that have some crossover into our place archaeology. The aliens you find in the native drawings in Utah and out there, things like that. I talked to Tom Ben. Your podcast, right? Was it an RSS feed? Can I go out and, and find this? Can the listeners of the show go yeah, and listen to that? find it. Gotcha. So the podcast that I had, the Oopa Loopa Cafe, I, I interviewed people who had been in this business for a while. Mm-hmm. I call it a business, but it's really... Uh, more of a occupation that is non-paying with a few exceptions. There's, you know, there are magazines and a few things like that. And I wrote 21 articles for Asian American magazine, but the podcast grew and grew and grew. And there, I was getting a hundred thousand hits on blog talk radio a week, which I thought was just phenomenal. And but the, platform became burdensome and ill-suited to what I was doing. I needed something where I could do pictures like Zoom, except that this time I don't have anything to share on screen like I would like to. Anyway, the podcast there grew into another one that was called Unraveling the Secrets. I did that in partnership with a guy by the name of Dennis Crenshaw. Sadly, Dennis died very early this year related to COVID. And his website, the Hollow Earth Insider, is still active and I'm kind of trying to maintain it the best I can. That particular strange stuff, it's out there with, I don't know how many hits on it over three different platforms. But the upshot is I got heavy into the podcast. And it's everything from UFO watchers to the Oopa Loopa Cafe to ghost hunters to everything. I, I just got so active, it burned me out. And finally, I ended up with a two-hour-a-day live television feed on the local cable channel, wow. which wore me down to nothing. As you know, there's so much prep time goes into this stuff that a couple hours a day is really 12, 15 hours a day of production time. Indeed. the two hours that you're on. Right. So I got away from that for a while. And now my wife and I have bought a bar and grill in beautiful downtown Bicknell, Indiana, which is only 11 miles, 15 miles or so from Vincennes, where this all started. So now I'm back in the thick of things, in the proximity, with enough time to pursue parts of it. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I've, I've actually traveled down through Indiana last summer, uh, about this time of year, about a year ago, I was in Indiana. I went down to Nashville, Indiana. I went down and, and kind of explored the Southern area a bit. And I was staying up in Indianapolis, but I was really enamored to see the similarities between, you know, what was going on in that area and even as far west as Cahokia and even as far east as, as the Serpent Mounds. I mean, there are mounds in Indiana just as there are in, in Ohio and Illinois. Yes. And a couple of strange things about the mounds in Indiana. For one thing, there are two different sites that have mounds from 
both the uh, Mississippi and the Hopewell and the Adena. So you have at least the, the, those three cultures represented in one particular spot. One of those spots is called Angel Mounds. Angel Mounds has a whole bunch of strange stuff associated with it. For one thing, the chief archaeologist there, his name was Glenn Black, and one of the things he discovered in his dig in one of the mounds was a uh, was tusks from hogs, which were not native to North America before the Spanish conquistadors. De Soto supposedly brought the first hogs into North America, but we never got carbon dating on those tusks, which we should be able to do quite, quite readily. It never happened. If it was after, you know, 1540 or so, then it would be completely within the history. But those mounds weren't supposed to be active after about 1350 when that civilization fell apart, according to all the archaeologists that are out there now. So there are some questions and mysteries in that particular site. And there are a few others that have similar combinations of cultures in the same place. One of them is Mound State Park near Anderson, north of where you stayed. But there in Brown County, where you stayed, I don't know where you stayed in Nashville or outside, but there are a whole bunch of anomalies right in there. There's Mound Street, but you can't find the mound now because it's been knocked down or whatever. There's a carved stone head that's a cornerstone on, I think it's Indiana 29. I'd have to go look it up on a map. But it sharp curves right out through the country there. And some writers consider it to be a pre-settler carved head and a piece of sandstone. Then there's a place in Brown County on a place called Browning Mountain where people attribute a bunch of carved stones to an American Stonehenge type site. I investigated that one pretty thoroughly and no, it was it was historical period and the guy was mining or uh, quarrying stone out of the side of that hill. The oddity associated with that though was he found gold nuggets. And that's well documented. There shouldn't be that many gold nuggets, particularly in a sandstone uh, formation. Mm. Anyway, so that kind of anomaly, strange history, strange combinations, all those things, that's what I look for. It's what I do. Yeah. Now, you mentioned you mentioned the mounds from Cahokia to Serpent Mound. I'm going to extend that line, quite literally, a line. I can draw you a line of contiguous signal post points from Cahokia to Narragansett Bay. Wow. I said, yeah. And I'm in, I'm in Connecticut. How many ops that is. Yeah. yeah. And one of those ops is across uh, Long Island Sound. Really? That's awesome. I'm in Connecticut. I'm, I'm wondering, maybe you've, you're familiar with this. There's a arrangement called the Hammonasset Line or Hammonasset Ley Line. I don't live quite near it, but if there was a line going all the way from Serpent Mound to Narragansett, I imagine it might be going close by. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the, the Regicide Cave, the Judge's Cave on top of uh, a mountain in New Haven? It's where the, the kings who signed King Charles, or the judges who signed King Charles I's execution notice, they escaped from England and, and hid in New Haven, Connecticut, when it was still its own colony. But it's a sacred well, I, site. I mean, that, we're also 
Go ahead. Yeah, they were also uh, friendly with the Narragansett at Nadies, if I recall correctly. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, the, there were a couple of, you know, interesting tribal colonist relations and King Philip's war was sort of centered around some of their disputes. King Philip's real name was Metacomet, not uh, King Philip. That was sort of his adopted name. But yeah, it's it's fascinating, the history. This structure I'm talking about, it's remembered as Three Judges Cave. But it's a stone that, you know, could be a glacial deposit. It's, con you know, it's left in such a way that there's this sort of hollow part. And it almost looks like a hand pointing up to the sky. And, and of course, the natives who resided in New Haven, the Quinnipiac, they regarded that stone as sacred in some way. But, yeah, I just thought maybe that one of those mountains would be in alignment with this, you know, because they're just sort of, strange i think they're called trap rock trap rock mountains and they sort of look yes. out of place we'll say well another thing that i found is that often these signal points will coincide with what i call marker mount or boundary mount and uh or they'll cross them at very distinctive points and the line that runs from cahokia to all the way to basically the Whalers points out on Massachusetts probably were there primarily for long distance trade to exchange information, place orders, and then the 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 much lower use or frequency of use would be more personal stuff, affairs of state. Hey, your uncle Joe's sick. You know the messages that common folk would have. But to order, to place an order for long distance goods, I'll give you an example. Cahokia was one of 17 various sites. I'm sorry. Cahokia was one of 38 various sites where 17, I got it right the first time. One of 17 sites where 38 different ceramic vessels were collected. And each of those vessels had not just very similar, but very close to identical patterns on their outside. Right. They also had the same contents as tested by Bell Laboratories. And it was cocoa. So you had cocoa from Wisconsin, Florida, Cahokia in, in Illinois, St. Louis area, Chaco Canyon out there, way out there, up into the Great Plains a couple of places, and Florida, Georgia, all through there, 38, uh, 17 different size, 38 vessels. And this cocoa would have been probably some kind of a fermented product. Mm. So if you think of how a Coca-Cola bottle is a distinctive marketing part of their marketing, then this vessel was a distinctive part of the marketing for this cocoa drink. Right. It was a brand. Yeah, that's so interesting. It was a brand. And it arrived probably from the very southern parts of Maya country mm -hmm. <laughs> to St. Louis and beyond before its expiration date was expired, probably in just a couple, three weeks of transport. And you can find copper from Upper Michigan, a silver from Nova Scotia, obsidian from Yellowstone, various things in Maya country. And you can find shells, uh, in particular conch shells, from the Gulf Coast all the way up into Upper Wisconsin and up into the provinces of Canada for that matter. Right. Right. And you mentioned, you mentioned obsidian. I've heard you talk on previous interviews about Montezuma having this obsidian scrying mirror and he possibly, you know, foresaw the, the coming of the Europeans using this cult device. 
Is there any any evidence that you know these strange artifacts were used in other ways, maybe to you know flash uh, a signal from atop of these mounds? That's what I think is much more likely than some magical mirror, but a mirror that reflects light sent by a signal. Yes, certainly. And long before Montezuma, even into the Almacs, they had mirrors of similar design, although they, uh, although they, I'm pretty sure they were used in the same way, they used a different manufacturing technique and different materials. They used pyrite for most of theirs. But the Maya cities, when you, because nowadays LIDAR has become commonplace. Back when I was doing it, it was brand new technology. The Maya cities are laid out for the most part on 10 mile grids, 10 miles, 10 miles, 10 miles. They're all in a grid throughout the Yucatan. Despite the terrain, they're all able to talk to each other because their observatory is the highest building in the city. And they would go 10 miles with these mirrors flashing a signal. I don't know how, you know, the actual stroke for stroke, keystroke kind of thing with theirs. I do with the European stuff because we have records. There probably were records for the Maya too, but well, they all got burned. Right. I asked Texas as well, but they used the same calendar. They used the same numerical system. They almost certainly used the same communications techniques and technologies. And like cell phones, it's a line of sight communications technology. Right. Wow. <laughs> so and now when you get up into New England, the terrain is a little more difficult for it than say the Great Plains with its you know mountains at one end and well, mountains on the other side, too. The United States Army in its longest hop in, I believe it was 1881, they ran an experiment in Utah and they shot from one mountaintop to another mountaintop at a single hop distance of 184 miles for a complete no errors message. They use Morse code, of course. We don't, or the natives didn't. They used something similar, I'm sure. It maybe probably wasn't alphabetic to begin with. It was probably syllabic. You know, this combination of flashes means the wah syllable. Or I don't know what the exact calf was, but I'm pretty confident that it was all based off the same lingual numerical stuff that was used from all Mex Toltecs, Maya, Aztec, Mextec, all of them use the same thing context mattered that's what the spanish could never understand about the maya their language is context based so you could have this one syllable that meant any of four even six or eight things depending on the context in which it was used which seems like a more intelligent way to structure a language if you ask me it feels like it, it leaves less room for error Yes. And the other great thing about it is, much like the Romans, we'll come back to that in just a moment, that syllable might mean, as, as one example, it might mean uh, king, it might mean jaguar, it might mean yellow, it might mean the numeral four, mm. depending on its context. Right. So the numerical and the syllabic could both be included in the same character set. You just had to know the context it was being used in. Hmm. Now you go back to the Romans. 
And we only had this record from a guy by the name of Polybius. And he was a uh, hostage to Rome from a king of Greece. The king was his father. And Polybius lived in Africanus's house for 17 years, helped tutor his children and, and accompanied him to Carthage on the final burn down. And his is the only eyewitness account we have of the siege and fall of Carthage. In it, he tells how the Romans used flashes of light, whether it was reflected sunlight or torches, to send signals. And they used, in their case, used both the Latin and the Greek alphabets. You know, just a little bit of encryption there. But they also had a signal that told the receiver that the next system would be alphabetic or numerical. So, but wait, one, 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 one V. Oh, wait, it's I, 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 V. So who taught who? I don't know. I think the Toltecs had it long before the Romans existed. Well, and, and it's interesting because... I've seen you write about this topic that the Romans were actually in the same region, possibly as the Toltec culture, or at least people who are influenced by the Toltec culture, because archaeologists, they like to stratify, categorize, separate, and that makes things kind of complicated. As you made the, the point earlier about this cocoa being found all over the place, it's pretty clear that whether or not they were the same culture, they had established a trading route, a common language in order to trade with. So when the Romans came here, what was that like? I mean, how, how did that first, you know, that idea first come to you? Was it something that you found or something someone else found that, like, where, where does this start, the Romans in North America? Okay, where it started for me was, remember that whole 10-year-old chasing history? Mm -hmm. Almost said chasing fantasy, but it isn't. <laughs> By the time I was 14, I got acquainted with a couple of guys there in the town where I grew up. And both of them were local historians, and, and they didn't exactly share their views of local his history. But one thing they did share with me was that there were a series of stone-built forts all the way across Indiana from the Wabash River to the Ohio River on the east. And, of course, I thought, yeah, you old geezers, you're pulling my leg. And I went to look, and I found out that two of them were very well cataloged and in the history, in the archaeology, in the record. And depending on which old geezer I was listening to, there were either 10 of them or 12 of them that stretched across the state. Doesn't matter to me how many there were exactly. But by 2009, I had found another one. And what, how this came about is I wrote an article for Ancient American Magazine describing these two fortresses and how these geezers had told me that, you know, there would be more and what to look for to help me find them. They would be on a waterway. They would be on a bluff overlooking a waterway. They would be highly defensible as like a hill fort. They would ostensibly be about one day's march apart for light infantry and all the other criteria. They'd have access to drinking water and a few other things. Well, one of the readers sent me a, a note 
through the magazine and said, hey, I have something you might want to see. And he was right. I thought, well, now that's really cool. It's it's a hilltop. It has several stone structures that stop up ravines. And they all seem to be at the same elevation around this hill. If you were just doing stopping up ravines for erosion control, you'd probably have them at different elevations to do. And there's one place where the stair step down and there's two-story structures. But for the most part, the others, uh, the other five, are all at the same general within a couple feet elevation around this hill. And I'm thinking that's very fortress-like. There were probably palisades that filled in all those gaps. And then I got to thinking, well, where does that fall between those other two forts? So I put a ruler on a map and it fell almost exactly between them. I mean, on the line and about almost exactly halfway. And from there, I found three more sites. So I'm convinced that this whole line of fortresses was real. They all have some stone aspect to them, not full stone fortresses, although the one at um, Charlestown was full stone with actually two artificial walls, one of which reached 75 feet in height. Yeah. <laughs> a stone wall. Wow. And now this 70 foot... 75 foot feet in height. Is this the same? This is Devil's Backbone, the, the site that, that was correct. demolished, correct? Yes. <laughs> That's an annoying sound. Now, I don't want to get too far from the Romans. Is the Devil's Backbone within the the proximity to those other forts you mentioned? And, and how do those connect to the Romans? How do they connect to the Romans? Here's what I think happened. Okay. I think that the Romans discovered information in Carthage about a secret resource and its location being, well, someplace in Southern Indiana. As far as I'm going to go with that for right now. But it would be within that, barely within that line and and south of it. And from, from your point of view, I guess it would look like this across Indiana. Here's the Wabash, here's the Ohio. There are a whole bunch of anomalous archaeological stuff, various kinds. It might be stone artifacts, messages carved into stone, all these things that may or may not relate directly to this line of fortresses. But if, if the Carthaginians were here and the Romans followed them, that's where the Roman connection comes in. Later on, after the fall of the Roman Empire, I'm convinced, and it's not a belief, that's a convinced on facts, that the ancient Welsh, or as they call themselves, the Cumri, came here as well. And that would be the whole Prince Maddox legend. So, and I found enough stuff there to make that a convincing note. And and so I haven't I haven't heard of of this Prince Matic character. I'll remind you to come back to that because okay. I'd love to hear that story as well. All right. So the Romans, in their quest to recover everything that they thought they deserved by conquering Carthage, would have come to North America looking for this resource, and they would have sent a fairly large contingent 
because, well, the Carthaginians probably had done the same thing. The Ninth Roman Legion, which had been stationed in Britain and had been stationed there for 75 years at this point in time, this would have been 117, the entire Ninth Legion disappears from history in 117 AD. And they had been the outfit, the, the chief outfit to build the giant fortress at York and a couple others. And then they just poof, they're not, they don't, they disappear from history. There's no mention of them being broken up or killed off or lost a battle or anything. They just don't exist anymore. Except for one guy. And his name was, wow. Hang on a minute. Take your time. Carus. That was his last name. Emilius Carus. And he had, by 140 AD, he had found himself to be the governor of Arabia Petraeus. You know, the, the Valley of the Crescent Moon you see in the Indiana Jones movie with the Knights Templar and stuff? That place. He was the governor of that place. Petra. Well, you don't get those postings by just being a good officer. You get those postings by being an excellent officer and related to somebody. Uh, that's how that worked then. That's pretty much how that works now. But anyways, where he would have gotten the training to govern the most valuable trade route in the known Roman Empire, he didn't get that in Britain. He, he wasn't in Britain for that 25 years. He was someplace else. And I believe he was in the greater Ohio Valley. Now, having said that, the Romans, that the Roman soldiers he took with him from Britain spoke Cumry. They spoke ancient Welsh because, well, that's where they lived. They, you know, they learned the local language so that they could eat and get, you know, get goods and all the things that you do with a local economy. Even a foreign army stationed somewhere has to have dealings with local economy. And a good deal of their, all the auxiliaries that they had there, for the most part, were locals. And they would have taken a lot of those with them to North America if they went. So the idea that ancient Indians, namely the Mandans, might know some Welsh language would mean that they either came from Wales or they came with Romans from Wales. They would have come from Wales somehow. In 1802, when Thomas Jefferson was priming Meriwether Lewis to go on this adventure out west, oh, by the way, the purchase in 1803 had been planned for a very long time. One of the things Jefferson directed Lewis to do was to go investigate the Mandan Indians for any evidence that they were ancient Welsh descent. They were fair-haired, blue-green eyes, good-looking by white folk standards, you know, all that stuff. So it was an anomaly of state at this point. If they were Christian-era Cymru, Welsh, that could pose a threat of threat to the sovereignty of the United States by right of conquest. If they were, then they had to be conquered themselves. Well, by 1834, they were extinct. Smallpox got them. Whether that was on purpose or not, I don't know. 
And that's right, often anyway, the that, case. That's yeah. The Welsh Roman thing in a nutshell. Yeah. Wow. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but the the story I had asked you to remind me of with this Welsh uh, nobleman, this post-dated or predated the Romans venturing there? Post-dated. Okay. So then so after... The Romans, yeah, the Romans would have been, if, if this is accurate, they would have been in North America from about 117, 118 up to about 140. And they may have had a presence after that, but it's not as well established. Right. The Brits or Kumri, Welsh... They would have come in 571, 572, depending on uh, how long it took them to equip. Now, you got to understand that at this time in history, the Welsh calendar was different from the Roman Catholic calendar. And it was off by 33 years because, well, they started when Jesus was crucified, not when he was born. So... It's, it's a mess on what date you're really talking about. And if it was a Welsh date, it would have been 540, whatever. If it was a Catholic Christian date, it was 571, or however that math worked out. Now, having said that, there was still Christian era stuff, even when the Romans were here. Because by the middle, or, or even early second century, Many of the Brits and a few of the Romans were converted without persecution. They were Christians. However, they didn't claim North America. There's no history of them making a claim to it. So that doesn't impact sovereignty. The Welsh, on the other hand, they colonized. That's the same as laying, laying a claim. And if if they if there's ever strong evidence that they actually established a colony and and held it, that would be a legal threat to the sovereignty of the United States. So, Tom was pretty careful about that. So prismatic, five seventy one or whatever. Anyway, there was a there was a major extraterrestrial impact event. An asteroid hit the Atlantic Ocean, and it caused the northern hemisphere to go dark. And the Dark Ages is not about the ability to read and write or the fall of the Roman Empire. No, it's about it being dark. It threw so much stuff into the atmosphere. Sunlight did not make it through. There was famine. There was disease, of course. There was warfare, all kind, uh, pretty much all over the northern hemisphere. Not just Europe, not just North America, pretty much every civilization that was extant at that time started building stone fortresses. Hmm. So the Indonesia, Siam, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, even the French encountered all you know ancient stone fortresses, Angkor Wat. They built all these things in that period of time, or at least they started them. Some of them kept going for a thousand years. Angkor Wat being one of them. At any rate, everything changed. One of the changes was the people of Britain had to find a new home or start to death. So they loaded up with Prince Maddox, who was the admiral of the fleet. And when that impact event hit, it had sent him and his fleet to North America, where 
He spent 10 years gathering them all back up and preparing to return to home, which he did. When he got home, he found that people were starving to death. His brother, the king, a half-brother, was sending off to far-flung places, including Egypt, to buy grain. That was the only time that Britain ever bought grain. They were exporters for most of their history. And I forgot to mention that Maddox's half-brother's name was Arthur. He was King Arthur II. Not the first. That was Uther Pendragon's original son. But this is his uh, great-grandson. Anyway, so Arthur said, well, gather it all up. Let's go. So they did. And they packed everybody and everything they could into as many ships as they could have or build or buy. And they came to North America, where... Things were less uneventful than planned because the natives were kind of pissy about a whole big colony arriving all at once. And King Arthur took an arrow, actually he took several, and he died in North America and his body was desiccated. I'm going to go ahead and say, make this claim that his body was desiccated in a cave in Northeastern Alabama. And it is to this day called Walsh Cave. And over the entrance to that cave is Arthur Sigla carved into the stone. <laughs> yeah, and it's also in the, the ancient chronicles that his body was sewn into two deer skins and dried in a cave before being returned to Britain. Wow. Now, when you say, so he was killed in a, a siege or a battle in this colony that they had, you know, started, they made an encampment, and then his own men put him in the cave or the natives put him in the cave? Maybe I misunderstood. The, survivors, the British survivors of the battles okay. took his body. Right. And and his half-brother Maddox was part of that. Right. So there was still a prince of the crown in charge of this mission. Now, Arthur II had a son who was still alive in Britain, but he was not of age to be uh, coronated. So there was a regent. And Maddox did not, none of them trusted this regent. So they kept it a secret that Arthur was dead. And they even after they got his body back to Britain, they hid the body in a second cave for another two years until the son was old enough to be coronated. Now, that was uh, Peter's church was the final resting place for King Arthur II. Now, are there any, you know, is there any information about the journey itself? Would they have been traveling down the St. Lawrence into the Great Lakes and then out down the Mobile River? Originally, uh, all the lore says that they they landed in Mobile Bay. Oh, okay. And there was a case in 1702 when the French had started La Louisiane. And at this point in time, I guess the colony would have been like three years old. But the brother of the governor whose name escapes me anyway he raided that's the only right word he, he traded a, a drunken indian for information about an island that's in mobile bay and he went and he raided the artifacts from that island and it was called the island of statues and it's still called the island of statues but he retrieved uh, a man, a woman, a baby, an owl, and a bear. One of the more interesting aspects and the reason for the title of my book is that 
Arthur II was called the Golden Bear. So he had at least three different graves, and it's the graves of the Golden Bear. Fantastic. Wow. Now, when it comes to the myth that we get of King Arthur, do you think that this was a way of taking, you know, the heat off of North America, a misdirection so people wouldn't know about North America or know about this journey? Because the, the King Arthur's myth is is pretty profound it, it includes a lot of different elements from european you know mythology and occultism is that related at all to this story well it may be but if arthur and his knights were in search of the holy grail why were they here <laughs> right let's go with that for just a moment <laughs> right if if they were or if that was or maybe that was just pure fantasy. But if it wasn't just pure fantasy, then it would be because somebody left them with the impression that Joseph of Arimathea, who had the cup, took it to North America. Take it from there. I don't know where to look. Right, right. Maybe, oh, yeah, maybe, you know. Well, and there's this story of the, you know, lost tribes of Israel coming here. And you mentioned the Olmecs earlier. A lot of people talk about the Olmec statue heads having sort of an African look. And someone that I've met personally, Ross Ben, he's a researcher. He's written several different books. He talks about in his book how this Wangara gold trading network of African kings had established a silent trading route, which meant that they could trade with anyone. They didn't rely on language to trade. And they had knowledge of gold and all these different mines here in, in the North American, South American region and departed probably sometime after what we had just discussed, the, the Romans and the, the Welsh. Sometime in the 11th century, it seems, they traveled here or maybe earlier is there anything that you've seen relating to that? And, you know, when it comes to the Olmecs, what do you think about, you know, their origins? Oh, I think they were from, I think that they were Hawaiian and Tonga and generally Polynesian. Mm. Wow. If you, if you compare that head to the head council heads on Tonga, they're twins. Okay. So is and, and the helmets too. The helmets are very Tonga. Okay. Yeah, I haven't I've not been familiar with that. Thank you. So the the idea that they that this gold marketing which was also a diamond marketing network, by the way, it was a league of precious things. And for 180, 200 years they were based in Mali. For a thousand years before that, they had been based in Senegal, where the best shipbuilders in the world existed at that time. So take that for whatever you think it's worth. Wow. Yeah. And just north of there, just north of Senegal, Mauritania, what is now Mauritania, it was a different kingdom, and it was headed up by Juba, King Juba. Juba the first, Juba the second. Juba the second, Juba the first was murdered by Rome. Jude the second was, okay, Rome, you're in charge. And then he got invited to Caligula's party who had him killed. So 
Yeah, Romans can't be trusted. Um, but Molly, Molly and Mauritania are known for, I shouldn't say they're known, they're rumored to be the hub of all that activity. And Senegal built the ships. And the Senegalese are amazing shipbuilders and boatmen too. They'll take them out. Still today, they, they build ocean-going craft from almost nothing. Wow. Uh, they still know how to do shiplap holes. Yeah. So in plank stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's way out of my element. I don't know a thing about ocean navigation. One time I, I got on a boat, I got real seasick. I do want to get back out there for sure. I was a kid at that time. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. I do want to maybe go back to what we were talking about earlier. And, you know, you have the story laid out. What are some of the relics or out-of-place artifacts that you've found that back this story up? Coins I've heard you mention before, carvings of, of Indian elephants. I mean, this sounds like, uh, you know, old world stuff. Well, it is certainly old world stuff, but we'll take we'll go with the elephants for right now. We'll go back to Carthage and how you know Hannibal used elephants. But Hannibal, although he lived on the African continent, he only had one African elephant. The rest of them were Indian elephants. And the Polybius and all the other guys will tell you that. The one African elephant almost sank the entire fleet because they're wild and can't be tamed or trained. The Indian elephants, however, they almost certainly came from where their original origin, whether it was India, Ceylon, Thailand, whatever. But the the warfare with elephants was played the same way throughout that tier of nations. So they would have brought not only the elephants, but also the moots, the, the people who died and live with and are married to their elephant. I've actually ridden an elephant at uh, a state fair once when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they need that really thick blanket on them too, or, or your butt is full of prickly long hair. But the artifacts that have been found in North America that depict elephants range from mounds in Iowa, Wisconsin, along that line, to an engraved tablet found in a mound in Michigan to Variations. There was a shell engraved. That, that one's probably a mammoth rather than an elephant because of the age. And and by the way, the shell carbon dated to like twelve thousand years ago, so it was probably a mammoth. Elephant depictions in Maya land. The Copan has a couple of stelae that show very clearly, to my mind, elephants. Now the archaeologists, oh, no, they're macaws. Really? With people riding on them? I don't think so. There are all kinds of art everywhere engraved into ruins of great monumental buildings. They would not have recorded that if it hadn't meant something to them, something monumental. It's like seeing an elephant for the first time, whether it's in battle or not. If, if you've ever been around a lot of military, if you've seen the elephant, that means you've been in battle. I've never heard that phrase. Wow. Yeah, it is astounding, an astounding sight to see an elephant. I could attest to that. Especially if it's coming at you at full speed. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame they couldn't get those African element uh, elephants tamed because those would have been a, a hell of a fighting force. 
no doubt in my mind. <laughs> so the the whole idea that the relics I found of particular interest was that sigla of, of Arthur over the interest of that cave, and it was on the cover of the first edition of my book. Another one that I came across is that a stone carving, an effigy carving of a hog, very much a European boar style hog, found in in Indiana, just 10 miles from where I live, actually. Wasn't my find, but it's definitely either pre-Columbian out of place or post-Columbian, like, training aid or whatever you want to call it. This is what these critters look like. And by golly, they're good eating. So go kill some. Hmm. Hogs, hogs. Hogs in America are a problem at this point in time. Oh, 300 yeah. years ago when there were only seven of them, according to the archaeologists, it wasn't much of a problem. But now it's a problem. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard I up here in Connecticut, they don't really pose much of a threat. But yeah, I've heard my buddy Juan lives down in Florida and, and there's buddies of his that go on hunts all the time. And they're they're very, I mean, brutal animals. They could really hurt you. You know, don't be yes, just, you know. Prolific. Yeah, but it's interesting. Uh, we've had a past guest bring up this topic of, of out-of-place hogs. And he said that hogs were used by the Spanish as a sort of uh, biological warfare because the Spanish knew that not everybody would be, uh, you know, able to handle what the hogs brought with them, you know, bacteria and other diseases and so on and so forth. So they were possibly a part of this, you know, uh, rapid destruction of the Native Americans through illness. Well... I suppose that's possible, but trichinosis is the main, I don't know what the right words would be, the main problem with pork. If it's undercooked, trichinosis will take you. Right. And it's it's a, it's a bad it's bad disease. But the worst thing with hogs is they will destroy your garden. Mm. The same was true 500 years ago, same was true today. They will destroy your garden in one night, and your entire winter's food supply will be done. That's the biggest problem with hogs. And they did. They ran them through the gardens. Mm. Now, seven of them wouldn't make much of an impact. But by the time DeSoto died, according to his own chroniclers, and this was three years, much, you, he had 1,200 hogs out of seven sows, assuming they were sows, and assuming they were all pregnant when they got here. But we shouldn't probably assume all that. No, they're not that prolific. He was right. getting hogs from somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Wow. It really, really makes you wonder. And again, you know, archaeologists give us such a, you know, weird look at this subject. We don't have a lot to go off of sometimes, but it's this impression that Native Americans were hunter-gatherers, I think is very off, right? They they clearly were, were well aware of, of agricultural techniques and were using them even maybe in some biodynamic ways that the Europeans weren't even aware of at that time. So yeah. Well, not just agriculture, but also in aquaculture, they were arborists. They, they used everything that was available to them in ways that you don't think of a guy crossing the plains with a spear could do. No, they, they had access to lead, they knew how to melt lead and make lead utensils. There were ancient lead mines in Iowa and Illinois before the French got there. 
And in fact, the 1716 map by Delisle calls them ancient lead mines. <laughs> so, and there was something encoded in that too, by the way, because on the Iowa side of the Mississippi River, he, he used a different capitalization technique for those lead mines than he did for the Illinois lead mines. So there was some information he was conveying in an encoded fashion to the king, or in that case, the uh, Dolphine. Right. And it, it is it is sad because even to this day, people have these really insidious beliefs. And I had someone comment on a YouTube video. I did a podcast episode about ayahuasca and curanderos. And they said, oh, what's this noble savage crap? I said, are you kidding me? This is you shouldn't be listening to this podcast if you have this kind of uh, mentality. But can we please, you know, maybe settle some of those disillusions? Because I've heard you talk about how the Cherokee had paved streets, bricked homes, and and even, you know, to your point that you just made, aquaculture and water features, plumbing even. Is that all correct? Yes. Yeah, uh, that is all correct. They also had printing presses in their own newspaper in their own language with their own alphabet, or in that case, syllabary. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and they had... And again, it was the Cherokee who got me onto the idea that this multiple context thing crossed borders. Okay. So when the Maya syllable had one syllable had these other meanings because of context, well, in the Cherokee fashion, you can do something pretty similar because they, they had the seven seven uh, sacred colors and the seven sacred directions. And they were all coincident. For instance, black was west, black is death, black is whatever, blue is south, blue is sad, blue is, if you got the blues, you got it from the Cherokee. White is north, maybe obvious reasons. East is yellow, sunrise. And all these, it's systematic and it's a self-contained, self-consistent system that allows communications in a variety of ways, the Cherokee were one of the five civilized tribes, supposedly. You hear about the Cherokee alphabet, you don't hear that they were also with the Iroquois. They did, they, they despised the Iroquois, but like the Iroquois, they had a system of government that was based on democracy. <laughs> so, you know, it, it wasn't... You know, they weren't noble savages. They were noble civilized people. Right. And they knew how to use the, the entire ecosystem in ways that were generally sustainable, more sustainable than the Maya had been. Right, right. And I mean, you can see evidence of it today. Look at California and the way these fires get out of control. I mean, obviously, burning was a practice not just in, in that part of the country, but all over up up here in the, the East Coast, I know, you know, some people say that the, the field rock walls in New England were all built by Europeans. My thought when I first started seeing some of the more remote ones was that maybe the natives had built these to contain some of the fires and, and make it a little bit more of a manageable job. I, I mean, just a, a speculation as somebody who's hiked many places in Connecticut and found walls that go up steep inclines and over slopes and in places where farmers have never farmed. And, and they follow incredibly straight lines. Over Absolutely. That Absolutely. 
Yeah, I, I'm aware of it. New England also has all these chambers. Right. Um, Mystery Hill or American Stonehenge, whatever you want to call it. Gunji Womb. Yeah, you should interview Dennis Stone about his property up there. Okay. Dennis Stone. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a link or a, a, a contact info. Thank you. I'd appreciate that. I've actually visited uh, American Stonehenge. I didn't go uh, past the sort of tourist, you know, little area in the in the front where they show you some of the artifacts. Just had enough time to stop in quickly. But yeah, I would love to to get in touch with them. I've been to Gunjiwamp myself. Between me and you and everyone listening, I, I trespassed, but I was respectful and and I, I got to see what was going on over there. And it's a really astounding little area outside of just that one site. I mean, huge, huge ledges on the side. And I wonder if I had enough time, I might have found some more stuff. But it was it was definitely strange to hear that they claim it could be celtic in origin at least that's what some of the local archaeologists irish celtic yeah. yeah yeah and i wonder because i've heard other researchers say that there's a gaelic algonquin connection the languages are very similar well there's also one uh a, a similar claim between norwegian and algonquin dr myron hayne has has that one pretty much explained and cornered fairly convincing he didn't do all his original research himself but he's uh, taken a book that compared 15,000 words between the two languages and uh, affirmative comparisons wow you know, not exact in all cases but similar enough to make it intriguing yeah well there there is that Nurembega colony that they had down there it was predating any of the you know English settlements here. Right. Yeah. Maybe predating it by three or four hundred years. Wow. Wow. So yeah, it's and you know, all the early maps show the Newport Tower. So that's another one that's a, a fascinating out of place artifact, in that case a large out of place artifact. Uh, the Newburn uh, the Newport Tower is on that line of sight, I might add, that goes from Cahokia to well, all the way out. Blanc Island Sound runs from between Long Island and basically Rhode Island. Right. And in the middle of Block Island, there's a raised spot that once had a stone tower. And it would be at the outside edge of the maximum distance you could go along that line over that bay and still get a good signal most of the time. So Block Island from what what is it? Very tip of Long Island, whatever that town is out there. Oh, Montauk. To Montauk, yes. It, it's just right at 26 miles, which is the extreme limit for line of sight over horizon. Now, Montauk, interestingly enough, once had two stone pillars on the beach, basically facing in that direction. And they were removed for museum purposes, and I cannot locate them. Huh. Yeah. They were carved obelisks is how they were described. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I don't doubt that given, you know, the record with Yale and Harvard in this area, I've been studying, you know, particularly when I was a young man, I was in community college uh, to 
study anthropology. I ended up dropping out to, to get a real job. And, and you know, and, but while I was at college, I, I ran into a homeless character, a, a man who had traveled from Arizona to New Haven in a sort of spiritual rite of passage. He had just sort of felt like he had to right some of the wrongs of his past. And doing this was, uh, you know, a rite of passage. And what he was doing was going to the tomb, the Skull and Bones tomb on High Street in Yale University. And he would scream Geronimo's name at the top of his lungs. And every day at high noon, he would pray, you know, for this, for this spirit of Geronimo. And I, I ran into him just in the park at this spot that, you know, the New Haven Green has over 6,000 bodies buried in. And it's, it's astounding. Some of them were overturned during the hurricane in 2012. But, but yeah, he, he taught me about so many different things. It kind of inspired me in my own way to get into all this stuff. But it was just really fascinating to, to learn that Yale had robbed the grave of Geronimo, this man who, who's a legend, you know, never captured, turned himself in. You know, I've heard you talk about him uh, on past interviews and how he had the ability to, you know, decipher the, the codes that the army was sending through those signal posts you were describing earlier. And yeah, I just, I wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on these archaeological institutions and, and, you know, groups like the Smithsonian and National Geographic? What's their goal? You know, obscuring these things, busting mounds, destroying relics and, and hiding these things. Well, again, we can take part of it back to the sovereignty of the United States, a legal sovereignty of the United States. They would not exist if the United States did not exist. The Smithsonian, which is in existence because of the money of a London contributor, Smithson, and he did not want the government to have control of the Smithsonian, and yet they have control of the budget, therefore they have control of the museum. Are folks in the museum hiding stuff, or are they just inept? Pick right. one. <laughs> right. Pick one that suits you best. Right. Right. And and it seems like, you know, whoever these financial interests are, that, that does seem to be their goal is to keep the, the resources coming back to the old world from the new world, gain control. And, you know, clearly... It's so hard to even, you know, discuss this stuff with the average person because they've wiped it from our history. But to find out that the Cherokees were this advanced, you know, it's just, I mean, it's its disturbing, but it, it it's really enlightening, you know, and I think that more people need to be raised to this awareness. You know, you mentioned Jefferson. I heard Jackson also played a role, Andrew Jackson, and he was sort of a Mason and, and really in a time when Masons were hated, you know, he was sort of the the, the Mason that kind of won the, the country back for the Masons or at least just bullied his way back. But what are your thoughts on him? It seems like he had a very contentious relationship with the Native Americans. He did. The... Indian Removal Act, which it's attributed solely to him, but it was not his sole work. Uh, the idea that it was found unconstitutional by the 
Supreme Court, and yet they still went out, you know, carried out, kind of beside the point. It didn't matter that it was illegal. Uh, but some of the first lands cleared, Jefferson, Jefferson Jackson bought up and trying to run it as a silver mine. He had very little success with that. That's a whole different story. He was chasing another dream, another treasure story from another mason. Um, we could do a whole new show about that one. But anyways, Jackson did not want a central bank. The Masons at that time were vilified because the bankers did not want Jackson in office. And the newspapers, particularly one run by one Thurlow Weed, ran a campaign to vilify all Masons simply to keep Jackson from winning. And it didn't work, but they created an entirely new political party and wild rumors and speculations about Freemasons that had very little basis in truth. But they managed to do both edges of that sword, and they put a big hurting on the whole Mormon movement at the same time because the two were intertwined. Anyway, Jackson, Jackson was a racist bigot businessman who hated crooked bankers. Hmm. Right. Right. And, you know, in his time, that was a pretty common disposition to be, you know, to have those, you know, prejudices. So I guess we can't yeah. really blame him all too much. But it is interesting to to hear that the Masons were not, you know, because I've had a past guest, Michael Hoffman, on the show, who's, you know, wrote a lot about the evils of the Masons. But, you know, a lot of people in this community would argue that the bankers are far more evil than the Masons. So, you know, it's it's definitely a twisted and there's a lot of tangles in this web, you know. Yep. That's, That's sure. right. There's a kid. Can't say much about it, but there could be some revelations coming up about the whole Masonic villain thing. Hmm. It may come out next three or four years. Well, there's so many interesting things we could we could get into. I don't know much how much more time you'll you'll give us, Rick, but it's truly a pleasure talking to you. I want to go back to Slack Farm and the gravesite because I heard you talk about how this was kind of an important find in the at least in the vein of, of the justice, you know, especially considering the, you know, what I just said about Geronimo and his grave being desecrated, you know, like th this has happened more often than just in that case. It's happened many, many times. Can you right. let us know about this? Sure. The slack farm, which incidentally is not all that far from where I'm sitting right now. It's in uh, Kentucky on uh, the banks of the Ohio River. It's more or less directly across from the, where the Wabash joins the Ohio or in the old Indian fashion where the Ohio joins up as the tributaries to the Wabash. Anyway, in 1983 or four, old man Slack died and his heirs, none of them wanted to be farmers, so they offered up the farm for sale. They almost immediately got uh, an offer from a consortium, if you will, of pot hunters who brought in backhoes and bulldozers, and they just started running a track across the farm. 
and every place they everything they knocked the top off of was a grave. So you might first you might wonder how they knew where those graves were. Well, there were markers. It was a marked cemetery, and uh, it had two platform mounds, so it was truly a mortuary center. 4,800 graves later, desecrated with a bulldozer, lawsuits ensued. They, they finally stopped it on a noise ordinance, which is interesting. But the idea that they had desecrated all these graves was not within legal boundaries. There was no law governing it. That changed with the Native American Grace Protection and Repatriation Act, what we call NAGPRA. Made it a felony to deliberately dig in graves, dig up body parts or or mortuary goods. So that has had its repercussions too, not only on the pot hunters, but also on the Native Americans who have had a hundreds of generations uh, tradition of adding to or or modifying grave goods in memory of the dead. So now they can't do that without committing a felony. So it's double-edged sword. Wow. It almost makes you wonder if this isn't, you know, intentional, like it's all piling up, you know? I mean, geez. Well, it sure makes me wonder that, but then I've wondered that for a long time. Yeah. Uh, we let's go back to the devil's backbone for just a moment. Okay. Please, please. Here's this place that we know was an ancient fortress. We have evidence. We have drawings. We have narrative of a qualified geologist, two qualified geologists, archaeologists of the day, 1869, 1870, describing a fortress, artificial walls, how it was laid out, everything that there was an ancient quarry on part of the bluff. And this description came out again in 1869-1870. It was published by the Indiana uh, Historical Society today. If you looked on the USGS topo maps, they'll tell you that there was an ancient quarry there. But they don't say anything about the fortress. And they don't have the quarry in exactly the right place. What you find there today is a quarry that removed all instances, all evidence of an ancient quarry for a new quarry in 1894, 92-94. In fact, you can still find part of the uh, pressure tank for the steam-driven jackhammer that they used to quarry that stone. And, yeah, and they used that stone to build a coffer dam in the Ohio to build a new railroad bridge. Now, let's go to... Who decided to remove stone from 14 miles upriver, or uh, call it 10 miles upriver, to move it downriver to build a coffer dam in the middle of the river from a bluff that was 210 feet above the river? <laughs> okay, that's not where they got all the stone. No, they destroyed all the walls. They destroyed all the evidence of some culture having been there, and they sank it in the middle of the Ohio River. They also destroyed the faces that were left of the ancient quarry, presumably because it had something on there they didn't want anybody to see. You know, like, well, I don't know, maybe it was Prince Maddox's signature. I don't know. But that's who is attributed, uh, who, who this work is attributed to, is the Welsh. 
I'm pretty sure it predates the Welsh. It may go back as early as second, third century BC with the Carthaginians. I'm confident it was rebuilt by the fourth or fifth, sixth century for this whole Dark Ages thing. But I think there was also a, a second one in there in maybe the second century when the Romans were there. So anyway, it's a, it's a continuous story. It's one of those continuous, near continuous occupation sites right up until, well, Prince Maddox's party was decimated or annihilated as the case may be. There's a place just downriver from there, well, 14 miles downriver below the falls of the Ohio. And it was called Bone Island for a long time. And the natives, Chief Tobacco, and the other one was uh, Chief Cornstalk. They both described how this island was covered in human bones waist deep. And it was about nine acres. So <laughs> that was uh, a massacre where the red Indians tore up the white Indians and left a big pile of bones. Wow. And supposedly... Uh, that pile of bones was still visible at times right after uh, the revolution. So, so anyway. Yeah, so there had been conflicts going before Columbus between people of old world blood and what we could call maybe new world blood. But, I mean, it just depends on how far you go back. Because when you go back, it seems that we all have a common origin in some pre-flood civilization i mean where do you fall in in that do you venture into the you know atlantis equation and, and Mu and, and that kind of stuff how far do you go back atlantis yes Mu is a different name for atlantis and a mm. different ocean than where most people put it i don't believe it's in the indian ocean or the pacific there were other civilizations there but lemuria is a construct it's a modern construct Mu may have been the basis for part of it, but it wasn't Lemuria. And Mu might have been Australia for a while. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Those people, those Aborigines, they have art going back 50,000 years. Wow. They didn't walk there, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's funny. We were talking about elephants and and you know, hogs before, but marsupials are, are a really strange, strange facet of biology and they have no origin scientifically. They, they trace them back to some continent, maybe the one that's under Antarctica, but it is strange that, that we have them here in one species in, in, you know, North America, a couple species in South America, and then only in Australia. Yep. Yeah. That's right. But I will say this, an opossum will hit you right on anything that moves. I just did that two million years ago, give or take. Yeah. From South America to Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Who was sailing two million years ago is beyond me. But somebody was actually sailing because a, a, a natural raft of, you know, reeds and whatnot, it's not going to make it that far. Mm. Right. Right. Now, you mentioned earlier the, the woolly mammoth carving. I had a, a guest on recently, Chad Stemke. He does a lot of good research up in Michigan. He was telling me about these uh, stone circles that they find underneath Lake Superior, which is the largest. Lake Michigan, but yeah. Oh, okay. Lake Michigan, right. And is this, yeah. th this is the same... This is the same object we're talking about here, right? This yeah. carving of a yeah. woolly mammoth? 
Now, he talks about these star forts that were built down, you know, some ways away in Detroit. Have you found these star forts in your research? It, it, what are, what's your explanation for these? It's a good military tactic. Mm. It doesn't matter who built them. Whoever built them understood military tactics. Right. And fortification principles. That's these stone forts that appear all over the world, they're stone because they can't be burned. They're hard to hit with anything short of, you know, rocket launchers that will actually take them out. Right. Catapults did a pretty good job at Masada, don't get me wrong. But it was that that was the Romans throwing stone balls that weighed 100 pounds and they throw them a quarter of a mile. They had their own artillery, much of which they learned from Carthage, incidentally. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it, what do I think? I think that military tactics and general technologies are known the world over. However, having said that, the archaeologists will tell you that archery did not arrive in North America until 700 AD. That would have been shortly after the Welsh got here with their English longbows, I might add. Really? The English did not invent the longbows, the Welsh did. Wow. <laughs> now, what are some of, if we could maybe broaden the, the conversation a little bit, what are some of the strangest out-of-place artifacts you found in America? Not maybe just yourself, but that you, you just can't explain even to this day. Burroughs Cave Tablets, the Michigan Tablets, uh, and the so-called Brewer's Caves objects, which only a few of them are out in the wild. But the Burroughs Cave objects, there are some 2,700. The, what they call the Michigan tablets or Soper Savage tablets or Soper Stockwell cat, many names for the same stuff. Tens of thousands of objects pulled from mounds, primarily in Michigan, but a few in northern Indiana. And they have writing on them that resembles cuneiform, but doesn't follow the same rules of you know, diction or anything else, sentence structure, capitalization, none of that. Well, they didn't use capitals really. But anyway, it's it's very confusing how any of these things could be so well documented and so numerous and not be in written history anywhere else in the world. So I'm, right now I'm stuck on Burroughs Cave, Brewer's Cave. Those are my two big ones. Yeah, and you mentioned that in the message, uh, my pre-questions that I ask everybody, and I am fascinated by this topic. Out here in Connecticut, there's a legend of a, of a cave, a man named Makamudis, who is this sort of like, not so much a god, but more of like a demigod to the Native Americans here, or maybe like an evil spirit. And I was hiking in this spot, and I heard a boom, 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 rumble in the earth. And people who live in the area, they hear seismic activity all the time. But the legend is that there's this jeweled cave underneath this, what's now a state park, where the Makamudis, you know, king of the underworld would rumble from. You know, caves are absolutely fascinating. We have the, the mammoth caves in Kentucky. Kentucky's a very strange, anomalous place. So many different things have been seen in and out of those caves. But what what drew you to these caves initially? Burroughs Cave? What what was the well, first? Burroughs Cave, yeah, Burroughs Cave came to light. Well, it's not, not exactly. Its existence came to light in about 1982 in Vincennes, Indiana. 
I was going to school at the San Jose Community College, there, which is junior college. Um, and I couldn't pursue it because, well, I was carrying extra hours and lots of labs and commuting and had no time to actually go after it. But again, Jack Ward had this museum and a few of the pieces got on display and were photographed for the local newspaper. So I was aware of the entire thing. Uh, and I was always a, a spelunker guy, but usually for public access case. And this one is still a secret. Its location is still a secret. Beer's, Brewer's case, same thing, still a secret. But there are literally hundreds of named and mapped caves in Indiana. And I've been in quite a few of them, and a few that aren't mapped or named. So where do you look for a cave like that that's, well, still held in secret? Look where there's caves. Mm. There aren't any in Illinois. Not that part of Illinois, anyway. So... Niles was just protecting the location by saying it was an only. Right. Now, are these primarily dry caves, wet caves? What kind of gear do you have to bring with you when you go in and into these? Well, the, I'm not going to be investigating any wet caves. I don't scuba in caves. Other people do that. They're far more qualified. I'm almost 70. I'm not going to go. <laughs> Uh, dry caves, I'm all over that stuff. Right. And I can squeeze through some pretty tight spots. Right. I've been in I've many of the caves in southern Indiana. Uh, not all of them, but not all of them public access. Like, that's the sound of three dogs. <laughs> yeah, we got a uh, racetrack behind you there. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. They could all be outside probably for lap outs. Oh, anyway, the right. caves thing, the whole mystery, the it, it could be a long-running television series like Oak Island and still never find any answers, much like Oak Island. But it's interesting. You can find all kinds of questions that'll keep you fascinated for the last 10 or 12 seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, they're excited. They're they're feeling the the high energy of this conversation, Rick. It's okay. I have a pretty good filter. I think I'll be able to filter their noisiness out with the with okay. the editing. So I'm not I'm not too worried about that. Don't let it bother you. Yeah, no, it's fine. But but yeah, I mean it is fascinating. People often, you know, underestimate the hollow nature of the earth, but I've heard you talk about this before and, and it seems that the math shows that there's actually a void in the center of the earth rather than a mass. Is that, is that correct? The math does that. Yes. The mass supports the idea that all of the acceleration due to gravity of the earth is away from the exact center as much as it is towards it. So it becomes a balance of, exactly zero gravitational that's the exact center like a bubble yeah uh, a void uh, you know at best it would be filled with gas or in that case plasma because it's still going to be pretty hot hmm. so you wouldn't buy into this fantasy idea that there's some kind of like inner cavity that's like facing an inner sun and, and have you seen these models would you subscribe to that I, model I'm not I'm not discounting it altogether, but the idea that it would be a habitable zone, I find very unlikely. 
Right. It would be more likely that the liminal space between whatever that heat source is and, and whatever we're on is, is more likely where the, the actual activity is going on. If, yeah, if there's any activity at all. Now, having said that, the coal of borehole, I don't know if you're aware of it, the deepest hole ever poured into the crust of the year of 14 kilometers. It's up in Russia, right? Yes. What they encountered was higher temperatures, vastly higher temperatures, higher density, vastly higher density, and gaseous carb, uh, gaseous hydrogen. Wow. They should not have found any of those things where they were drilling. So what does this support? It supports that the highest density of the Earth's crust is a lot further towards the surface than when we thought. That would mean that this whole iron core thing, if, if everything followed suit, the Earth would weigh like three times what it does. And, and would be, you know, the same weight as, you know, one of the bigger planets, one of the gas giants. And we're not even close. Mm. So the void has to be there. How big that void is depends on the gradient of density of matter. But matter's gravity equation says that it has to be lower gravitational pull at the center than it is in the middle. So at some point, if you went from the surface to the center, gravity would reverse itself from your point of view. And you'd be standing upside down. Right. On the inner surface, if you will. Right, right. Does that mean there wouldn't be an inner sun? Well, yes. Actually, I, I think there would be. The reason I say that is because of the Einstein-Rosen bridge. And the exact center of the Earth being at zero, true zero gravitational, would be white hole country. Some black hole someplace in the middle of the, the galaxy is collecting matter and energy and spitting it out to all of the heavy bodies in the galaxy. Wow. Including ours. Yeah. Wow. And it is fascinating to to realize this. And it makes sense. It it's, it's fits with this syncretic view of the world where things have a, a corresponding nature. And, and it, you know, Again, like the archaeologists, the physicists, and and who we we go to for these grand ideas of, of creation, they're just so far off the mark in so many cases that I would not doubt, you know, that they're wrong on the shape of the Earth or the context of the Earth. I don't go so, so far to say the Earth is flat, which is why your take is extremely reflect refreshing in this community but we won't waste our time yeah, on that topic <laughs> we won't waste our time on that topic but uh, yeah <laughs> but it is fascinating you know the caves it seems like the earth is more like uh swiss cheese right it's this, this hollow spongy sort of thing well within limits yeah in the upper crust certainly particularly in the portions of the crust that have seen oceans. The limestone is porous as it should be. That's why you have the same phenomenon. They call it cenote in the, in the peninsula, but they call it a sinkhole in Florida, different peninsula. The Yucatan is a cenote. It's a whole place to the mice. In, well, western Florida peninsula, they had some that were also worshipped by the Mayans. Right. But the two different places mean that the archaeologists will never agree on that. <laughs> right. There were never Mayas in Florida, but there were. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and on the point of limestone, I've heard from other guests that limestone is usually found wherever these ancient civilizations are built. And given that it's so porous, I wonder if that, you know, energy that's emanating from the center of this, you know, model you described, which makes a lot of sense to me. What if that energy is emanating through these porous areas and creating these centers of civilization, this inspiration, just through the sheer, you know, higher frequency? or harmonics. I'm confident it modifies the life force in some way. But the idea that there is energy being created, new energy is created at the center of the earth, is reflected, plays part in that pun, in the idea that there's 12 terawatts of energy emitted by the earth that does not come from our sun. Where does it come from? <laughs> we, we use 12 terawatts of electricity all the time. I'm not talking about an average usage period. I'm talking about continuous generation. Right. If we could somehow figure out how to capture what's being emitted at the center of the earth in the form of energy that we could use, we wouldn't have to make any more electricity from any other source. Right, right. And then this is what Tesla was supposedly working on, right? Yeah. Yes. Supposedly. Yeah, the, the Wardenclyffe Tower is actually, speaking of Long Island, it was built right across the shore from where I'm sitting right now. And he, you know, dug these channels underneath that tower, trying to harness the telluric energy of the earth. I wonder, you know, when you're, when you're looking at these megaliths and stone forts and all these different ancient sites, do you ever take into account ley lines or dowsing to help you find places or, or make sense of the alignments? I do the dowsing. The ley lines, there are so many different interpretations of it, I don't know how to make sense of it. However, having said that the ley lines and this internal force are related, let's go back to Serpent Mount. If you've seen the drawings of Serpent Mount as it existed when Squire and Davis uh, surveyed it, you will find that the egg in the mouth of the snake had a tall obelisk on it, which was later removed and pushed over the side of the <laughs> But even when they were there, 1840-ish, everybody told them that this thing was constantly being hit by light and they should stay away from it. It's like... Okay, maybe it was put there on purpose to absorb that lightning or whatever. But the ancients knew a bit about it. Yeah. Whatever they used it for, or if they used it at all, it's kind of immaterial. They knew it was going to happen or they wouldn't have put it there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Right on. Well, Rick, I got to ask you, you know, you're on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Does your family think you're crazy for pursuing these interests and, and hunting down these treasures? Well, they, they think I've spent a lot of time on it, but actually my wife goes along. She's, she's an excellent photographer. She helps document what I find. Awesome. Our son is uh, a retired army and he's trying to get the army or the VA to pay for an anthropology degree. Oh. Uh, so he can kind of be part of it. Other kids, grandkids, adopted kids, friends. They all like to come along on some of the trips. I love it. Or when we go to the, the forest, you know, <laughs> now, preservation, museums, that kind of stuff. 
we see as much of that as I can. I always find something new, even if it's the 10th or 6th time I've been there. Right. Yeah, and, and how could they not? It's so fun to go out and, and experience these places yourself, you know. If there were any places that you would recommend people visit if they live in Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, I know I have some listeners out there. What would you recommend? Obviously, Serpent Mound, Cahokia, those are well-known. Are there some lesser-known sites you would recommend? Yes, Mount State Park at Anderson is another good one. It's on the West Fork of the White River, and uh, it has some really odd mounds and... And his placement in relation to other features, that's too much to go into right now, but it's related to a whole bunch of other sites geographically. Okay. We have so many of the sites are interrelated. The ones that are state parks, public access sites, that kind of thing. It's important to understand that they, they're never just a standalone site. It's part of the integrated topography, both artificial and natural, that the natives or whoever use to their advantage. Uh, here in Vincent, or at home in Vincent, Stonerton Back Mound, Pyramid Mound, there are four mounds in town. They're all in a perfectly straight line. I've, Google Earth confirms that they were able to survey to perfect standards. Yeah. There are sites along the Ohio River that about every three or four miles so that they could have a continuous line of communications up and down the river, control the traffic, or at least monitor it. Right. Your order will be late, whatever it really was, whether it was and part of it, I'm sure, was military intelligence, diplomatic communications. Uh, but mostly it was trade. And once once that fell, and once the trade network fell, civilization fell. It's kind of like where we are now on, you know, availability of certain products and commodities. Yeah. I don't want to wait 18 months on my new toaster from China. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that. Well, Rick, this has been a fascinating dive into ancient America. I really, really, really want to give it up to you. True honor to to get into all these subjects with you. Someone like yourself, who's an expert, many years, many decades studying this stuff. Where can people go to support you? I tried to buy your book. It seems like it's out of print. Is there any plan to it's out of print? Is there any plans to reprint it? As high as eighty bucks. Yeah, it, it is not currently available. I hope to get it back in print this calendar year. Okay. And I hope to have a new one out by the end of this calendar year. But you can go, you can look, search Oopaloopa Cafe, and you can find me on YouTube and a few other platforms. You can find Oopaloopa Cafe on Blog Talk Radio, the whatever it was, 105 episodes I had on there. You can also look for Unraveling the Secrets. It's on iTunes and a few of the other platforms. A lot of them are... are are transcribed not into text but into other platforms often without my knowledge or participation or permission but they're out there so feel free to do whatever you got to do and check out ancient american magazine like i said i've got 22 or three articles in that all in back issues but almost all of them are available from the magazine you can look that up online too fantastic and then we um my friend and i who was on the phone earlier, I have a website entitled ancientamerica.com and it's it's going through a refurb right now, but 
it's pretty good. So check it out. Wonderful. Wonderful. And again, Rick, this has been great. I definitely feel like we mentioned a couple things we could have you back on to, to talk about specifically the, the Masons and who knows, maybe when the time is right, you'll come back and, and help me understand that situation a little more in depth. I mean, it sounds to me like the, the lid is still tight on that one. So I won't push you uh, to reveal anything, oh, but that project it is. Yeah. Yeah. But keep, keep in touch about that. Cause uh, I'm certainly interested and to everyone listening, please go support Mr. Osmond wherever you can, the various shows and podcasts. And of course, look out for those new books coming out in 2022 and the the reprinting of a very interesting old book much of which we we spent time talking about today so thank you audience and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now just listen to an interview on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast with rick osman writes regularly for Ancient American Magazine and has a book out called The Graves of the Golden Bear, Ancient Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio Valley. Should be coming out soon with a second edition, as well as another new book is soon to be released on The Seer and the Oracle. The music heard in our intro was The Blacksmith by Wicked Cinema and Spanish Ladies by Fare Ye Well. The music for today's extended outro is from an album called Natural Therapy by the artist Jazar. You can find his work at freemusicarchive.org. Hey, hey, all right, what an episode with Rick Osman, man behind Ancient America, the magazine. Check that out. The links will be in the description. Rick has been studying this stuff for a long time. He is a seasoned veteran and had some interesting stories that. I've yet to hear any other researcher talk about him. Bumps slightly up against the uh, Tartaria stuff a little bit. Some of the things that we were talking about there. And, uh, you know, I wonder if, again, maybe Tartaria is a psyop to take away from the truth of the Native Americans, which is a big part of what people talk about when they get into the world's fairs and how they presented the indigenous cultures of the world, phrenology and all those, uh, you know, eugenics adjacent sciences. So I think it's a, a controversial topic, not something that academia would deem worth their time, but Rick, he is a different breed, a real in the field investigator and it's amazing to have a guy like this at our disposal to be able to speak to him uh, given that our time is limited it was a great conversation yes there were dogs in the background yes there was barking at periods i hope you guys made it this far i know that might not be ideal listening circumstances but guess what the information was so good and i did the best i could editing it trust me it sounded way worse way worse before i started editing and you know rick is a great guy i definitely in the future will be sure to ask my my guests preliminary questions like hey do you have dogs will they be barking is there a quieter place to put them? 
and etc etc but that's okay not everybody has pro equipment you know me i live on a busy road motorcycles have been driving by a lot lately given the weather so yeah you might hear that on my end of the microphone from time to time and i do my best i got a pretty legit setup over here but either way rick osman bring in to the my family thinks some crazy podcast some amazing amazing stuff and i gotta give a shout out to the homie romy rising from the ashes podcast for bringing rick osman to my awareness i saw that they interviewed him and i thought wow i really need to talk to this guy as well so hey if you want to hear more i know for sure that dan danunaki and the homie romy brought their own take to the conversation and had a whole nother set of questions than I did for Rick. So if you like what Rick has to say, go over and listen to that episode. Uh, Luck was in their favor. I did not hear any dogs barking uh, in their conversation with Rick. But either way, we do the best with what we can get. And I certainly will be inviting Rick on in the future. Maybe we'll choose a different time of day to record when his dogs are a little uh, <laughs> less frisky and not at play anyways here we are in June going heavy into the month we've got some amazing interviews that have already come out Richard Grossinger I really like talking to him very unique guy uh, against the grain considering the typical political views of most of our guests I definitely do not want to be somebody who is on one side of the aisle or another or any side of the aisle i think this show can become apolitical even when we discuss politics that's important we should be able to discuss politics from an apolitical view but either way this conversation today with rick osman was entirely different not political at all but there are political interests in keeping this sort of thing hidden. I mean, you heard Rick say it, right? The reason why they don't want anybody knowing about Welsh possibly being here or the you know, King Arthur story or the Romans, any of it. It's all kept a secret because they do not want the founding fathers claim and the, you know, articles that establish our country to be questioned and I, I see some merit in that we see that in other countries as well uh, Freddie Silva was recently talking to me on the show about Armenia and how it's difficult to do proper surveys there of all these amazing ancient sites because of the various political tumult that is frequent and I'm looking forward to arranging Freddie Silva on tinfoil hat hopefully sooner than later because our homie Sam Tripoli is Armenian so I think he would love to find out that there are Armenian Anunnaki do you think listeners anyways get in touch with me on telegram that's the best place to join the community we got about 400 plus people in the telegram some of them are surely bots but we got our bot sniper shout out to tr policing for bots and a bunch of other 
crazy characters in the telegram chat go over there add your two cents and speaking of two cents please sign up to the patreon for only two dollars you can be a part of the family that's right you get a spirit animal name you get access to all of the bonus content i do a monthly show specifically for you the patrons taking you through some of the things i've been researching last month i did an episode uh, diving into president leslie lynch king jr i bet you didn't know we had a president whose birth name is leslie lynch king jr yeah go ahead and sign up for the patreon and find out which president that is or just google it then i get into all kinds of interesting stuff not just political corruption like we did with old leslie lynch king but some synchro mystic stuff the illuminati confirmed show has a bonus episode we just did a whole breakdown of this strange keanu reeves story uh very interesting stuff so be sure to support the show on patreon it's the only way i can keep this show going uh the only way i make money from this show is is from you guys the listeners uh i don't force you to listen to ads when you listen to this show so i don't have any you know advertisers paying me i'd like to have some sponsors that'd be cool if i could just do some sponsor reads I don't think people would mind hearing that at the extended outro if I made them fun and interesting because I got to pay rent, folks. I need a new car. Oh, here comes one of those motorcycles I was saying. I got to go and do stuff. You guys want me to go and be synchromystically exploring the United States, finding these vortexes? Well, I'm going to need some of that green, some of that kachang. So please go over to the episode description at the bottom of the podcast feed on the podcast app that you're listening to this on if you don't see it well guess what you're not using a good podcast app go into the google store or wherever apple store and get a different podcast app podverse podcast addict there are a bunch of them that you could use that'll show you exactly what i want you to see i want you to read the episode description so you can send me some scription. <laughs> no, so seriously though, so, so, so seriously though, I have Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, Kofi store, merch store, so many ways to support the show. You can even go on Amazon and buy me a book and send it to me and I'll talk about it on the show or maybe even interview that author. So, so many ways to support the show please do so it really is helpful and of course if you do i'll give you a shout out for just five bucks i'll send you a sticker i got a big apology to everybody who's paid for stickers over the past two months i have been a bad naughty naughty boy and i've forgot to go to the post office numerous times when i should be going to the post office i have everything addressed and mailed it's ready to go uh, but i keep fucking forgetting to go to the post office so i'm gonna go this week i promise and everybody who's waiting on stuff from me will get what they're waiting for so don't worry uh and everybody who just signed up uh don't let that dismay you i promise i'm getting more organized it's just you know moving into a new apartment and getting everything squared away summertime doing stuff uh but yeah i'd like to do more and with your support, I'll be doing a lot more. So 
make it happen. Let's do it together. And amazing things will surely be accomplished. I see it. It's on the horizon. Anyways, what else is on the horizon? I had a couple other things I wanted to say. So we have a, a challenge to all the artists listening to the podcast. Every episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast's artwork, thumbnail, whatever you want to call it, it's up for grabs. That's right. So every episode is up for grabs. What does that mean? Well, if you notice, if you have a keen eye, if you have a detailed eye, you might notice that the artwork for the show has looked kind of weird for the past 50-something, 60 episodes. That's because I've been using an AI image generator esoteric Eddie and I talked about on a new episode that'll be coming out next week I've been using this AI to create the image for the thumbnail for the podcast and I'm thinking to myself let's make a contest to see who can beat out the machine that's right all you have to do is pick an episode of the my family thinks I'm crazy podcast doesn't matter which one could be the newest one could be the one that comes out next could be the one that came out last week, whichever one you like. And you start at zero, you start, you listen to the podcast, the whole thing all the way through. And while you're doing that, you make art, right? A drawing, digital illustration, painting, whatever it is, as long as you can take a photo of it uh, or a copy of it, a digital copy obviously is the most preferred way, but get creative. If you're a sculptor and you sculpt something, while you're listening to the podcast, take a really good picture of it and send it to me. I mean, the sky is the limit, you know, uh, as long as it is within legal limits, and it, uh, within uh, natural law and all free will is in accordance, you know, with natural law, then send it away, make it up. Basically, I'm saying don't send me anything graphic, please. Anyways, if you're an artist, Make something for the show, thumbnail, and send it to me. And if we only get one, well, boom, you just beat the machine. Because in my eyes, anything a human does is better than what a robot can do, especially when it comes to art. Because robots don't have souls. And you, my lovely listeners, have souls. I can guarantee it. So if you're an artist, if you're an artistic, creative soul, Please get your drawing pad, your ink pad, however you make art, get that out, your canvas, and make something while you're listening to an episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Send it to me at my Gmail, MFTIC podcast, M-F-T-I-C-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. You can send it to me there. And be sure to tell me which episode, this is very important, I need to know which episode you were listening to when you created the art, and bada bing, you beat the machine. We get more than one person submitting to uh, the same episode, well, then we'll have a contest to see which one is better. Maybe I'll just decide myself, maybe I'll throw it out in the Telegram. I'm most definitely going to throw out all of the art that I get into the Telegram. Because I think people like to see that. And yeah, that's it. I mean, really, um, if you do an amazing job, I'll I'll even send you a tip. No promises on how much, but 
I'll send you a tip for sure. And we've already had a bunch of artists reach out and offer their services. So I think this could be a, a fun way to give you some exposure. I will certainly give you credit in the episode. And if you're wondering like, well, hey, the episode already came out. How am I going to change the artwork for it? Well, RSS feeds are pretty nifty. They're pretty neat. And if you're using a podcast app that updates on a frequent basis, which Apple Podcasts does not, that's right, repeat, Apple Podcasts does not update artwork, nor does it update many things on a frequent basis. So if you're using Apple Podcasts, maybe consider downloading another app just to listen to this podcast. Sure, go and listen to all those other podcasts you listen to on Apple, but for this podcast, just this podcast, you should get a special app where you can see the whole shebang, all of the features, you know, because I put a lot of work into all the facets, you know, people think podcasts, they think it's just an audio experience, but it's more than that. It's a comprehensive mixed media experience with you, the listener, the participants. So this is another fun way that you guys can and gals can participate in the show, send your art in uh, and be sure to listen to an episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast while you're doing it. Um, yeah, that I'm, you know, that's kind of the rule. I mean, I don't know why someone would send me art just randomly uh, if it doesn't fit into the contest. It's still cool, but just, you know, don't lie to me. Tell me the truth. I, I would like to know that you started from minute one and finished the whole episode and maybe continued it on longer say like oh yeah i'm gonna listen to but just try to listen to just one episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy per piece of art don't hit me with like oh i started listening to episode 150 and by the time i finished this piece of art i was at 156 it's like yeah but you know which one am i gonna use it for so you tell me uh and we'll just pretend like you only listen to one episode I don't want to put any constraints on it. If you take an hour to draw something, if you take 15 minutes to draw something, if you take a whole day to draw something, it's up to you. Everybody's got their own style, right? I actually went on a little walk recently um, with my girlfriend around a nice little water feature, and I drew it. I sat down, and I drew what I saw, and I was very happy with my artistry i don't know usually i would judge myself pretty bad to the point where i was discouraging myself from drawing but thanks to this really great product uh, for lack of a better term uh, process maybe is the better term zentangle i kind of got inspired to we'll say try a new approach to drawing something and if you're interested in learning more about that my friend michael wan recently interviewed the folks behind zentangle on his youtube channel and if you like michael wan him and i do a podcast called your handbook for the apocalypse you can find it on the susquehanna alchemy rss feed that's s-u-s-q-u-e-h-a-n-n-a-a-l-c-h-e-m-y susquehanna alchemy Go and search that and subscribe to that podcast. 
I do it every week. And we recently just interviewed Greg Carlwood. That's right, Greg Carlwood from the Higher Side Chats, believe it or not. It was a fantastic conversation. Normally, Greg is the superior host, top-ranked podcaster, inviting some really, really brilliant guests on his show every month. So it was an honor to have him on with myself and Mike. Mike being someone who Greg has interviewed several times. As I told Greg during our interview, hey, if it wasn't for you, Greg, I would have never probably met Mike. I don't know. Maybe I would have found another podcast that Mike was on, but it was really the Higher Side Chats that kicked that whole thing off synchronistically for me. And I was just listening to a recent episode of Aeon Bite, and a gentleman named Steven Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, had a very similar story with himself and our friend Chris Knowles. Chris Knowles being on this show twice, hopefully returning this summer. Uh, But yeah, just so amazing what these past two years have brought for people who are awake and aware and specifically the podcasting researcher, synchro mystic side of things has really blossomed uh, in my opinion. And maybe that's just because I'm a part of it all of a sudden. I went from a, a observer to a fan to participant to a figure in the community somehow, which I say humbly because I'm just learning. And anybody who listens to this show, um, you know, you're along with me on the journey equally uh, as equals on equal footing on common ground. Because just because I'm over here on my audio high horse doesn't mean that I'm not (laughs) digging down in the dirt, doing odd jobs, paying my bills, doing working class shit, normal shit. You know, this isn't the Tim Dillon podcast. Not yet, anyways. But here we are in the now. I've been bantering on, rambling on. I've got a bunch of episodes to do in the next few days, and I'm trying to edit one per day that way the extended outros don't become too repetitive because if i recorded a bunch of extended outros all in one day you might hear me saying the same shit right so i don't know we'll see maybe i'll do another one in an hour or two but it is getting late over here so i should probably wrap it up anyways thank you for tuning in hope you enjoyed this episode with rick osmond beatish Be sure to check out his book, uh, Grave of Golden Bear. Probably not easily available. If somebody is kind enough to buy that book for me, wow, that would be a tremendous honor. You would be eulogized and memorialized in the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy Hall of Fame, which we do have now on the Patreon. That's right, the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy Hall of Fame is a real thing. Uh, stay tuned for more updates on that but yeah please if you could (laughs) hook a brother up because that interesting book looks interesting and I don't know why I said interesting twice but that's just another sign that I need to wrap this up so here we are in the now ladies and gentlemen thank you for being here and have a great moment wherever you are in the now and enjoy this new rap song by my friend, my new friend, Polisma.
little extra terrestrial trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals but i confess too much off of the tongue all my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young i be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from in like a hundred years we went saw a bomb with guns check the facts check the fed check the stars standing minds was murked for a water fuel cell car they each they own you could stick with your old ways but eat the rich you drink the motherfucking kool-aid and i can see the red on your lip stain white skin blue collar pure american made fuck it you can keep your blood soaked heritage and run the soul off the moon landed narrative yeah my girl thinks that i'm embarrassing my folks think i'm nuts but never question the parenting stuck in bed so my boss thinks i'm lazy connecting dots but it's all kind of hazy the morning in the net feeling like i'm dick tracy my pack thinks i'm un-american and shady I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end. One too many Netflix docs on the weekends. But check the budget for a military defense. Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason. Steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got Ken talking behind backs Too much to unpack, so they talk smack And I'm just trying to converse with my clan But it ain't fan, so I'm here setting up camp Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me my family thinks some crazy